Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Are we going to stand to your feet with me? We're going to read some scripture together, and this is a way we can honor the Lord with our bodies. Just uh, kind of remember that what we're hearing right now are words of life and transformation. Uh, we're going to be reading out of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' longest uh, sermon we have recorded, and, and arguably maybe one of the most significant bodies of work in all of Scripture in terms of what does it mean to live into the life of the kingdom. And so we're going to be reading this, and we're going to just ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, change us, uh, move us, heal us as we, as we do this. Matthew 6, verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is dark, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink, even burritos. Or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet... I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a passage about two kingdoms and two treasures. Two realities to orient your life around. And Jesus is speaking directly to a level of worry and anxiety that was pervasive in the culture back then, and I would argue pervasive in the culture here today. And he's encouraging them to literally change their eye, singular, like how they look at life, to change how they understand their relationship between the material world around them, the needs that they have, the resources they accumulate, and to understand that there's a new reality and a truer reality that God invites us into. We're in a series right now called Trellis, where we're talking about what we call spiritual formation. 
And whether you're a Christian or not, you came in here this morning, your spirit is being formed. It's being formed by largely the habits and rhythms you live into. And if we're honest, most of the times those habits and rhythms just kind of show up in our life. And every January 1st, we'll maybe try and realign our habits or rhythms or disciplines. But the reality is, is those normal, ordinary choices shape us and they shape our spirit. The spirit, according to the scriptures, is your central operating system for your whole life. And so when Jesus shows up on the, in the world 2,000 years ago, he doesn't just preach a few sermons. He shows us a life to live. And in that life, there are rhythms and disciplines and habits that he invites us into. And so we're spending the whole fall talking about, about two different disciplines each week. And today, we're going to be talking about the discipline of simplicity and the discipline of generosity. And so when we think about these two things, I want us to think about them within the context of the formation of our spiritual life. Robert Mulholland's definition that we've been using throughout the series is that spiritual formation is the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. <clears throat> and I want us to think about this passage we just read, the things that we need, the things we worry about, and then by the things, literal things, resources, material goods, money, and how they play into our spiritual formation. And you might be like, well, is that kind of a big deal? I mean, according to Scripture, yeah, there's over 2,300 verses in the Bible that talk about money, that talk about resources, which is twice as much as all the verses on prayer and faith combined. 40% of Jesus' parables were on uh, the issue of our relationship to money. And the reason why that this is such a big issue is because it it really hits at what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reason Jesus talks about it, and if you know Jesus' ministry, he never took up a collection God provided for it, was because he wanted hearts. He cares about the, the formation of your heart and the formation of your spirit. Tolstoy says this, the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed either by changing of life or changing of conscience. And what he's saying is, you know that tension of like, I, I believe this, but my lifestyle looks that, that tension we all kind of live in. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. Tolstoy says, you can do one of two things. Either you can change your life, realign your life, which is what we're trying to do in this series, or you can just change your conscience. Meaning like, I'm just going to just change my belief system to fit the lifestyle I want to live. And unfortunately, there's some of that in all of us. And so when we dive into the topic of generosity and simplicity, I, I, I just want to, before we dive into the teaching, I just wanted to have kind of a pastoral moment with you and just some honesty with you. Uh, this has been an invigorating topic to dive into. Matter of fact, I, I knew this topic was coming a few months out, um, and I've, I've spent probably more time reading about, praying through, researching this sermon um, than, than most sermons, which I spend a lot of time on, because it's one that I find very interesting to me because personally I find it a bit perplexing. I find it perplexing, my relationship between the material world around me, the resources that I've been given, and how does that, how does that correlate to my Christian life and following Jesus? What does it look like to live in, in a model of simplicity um, when we follow a Jewish rabbi who invited people to leave so much? And, and I, I don't know about you, but I find myself 
personally just kind of wrestling with this, and I've found myself this week being very humbled. So I come today not so much uh, with a ton of answers. I, I do come with I, what I believe a, par- a biblical paradigm for how we should think about this, but I'm, I'm with you on this journey, trying to sort through what does it look like for these specific disciplines to be instituted in my life so that I can be formed more deeply into the way of Jesus. Robert, um, Robert uh, I'm sorry, Richard Foster, uh, talks about these, these two different extremes. There's legalism and license. And when it comes to generosity and simplicity, I, I find these incredibly uh, pervasive. Legalism is that you believe there's a way to, to talk about money and simplicity, and in, anyone who doesn't line up with that, it's really easy to judge them, and really means that you probably live with a low level of guilt and condemnation of your own life. Or there's license, meaning like that doesn't really matter at all. And I don't really even think about it. And I don't really want to think about it. Because then I have to like, then pay attention to that conscious that I'm feeling. And so we live in between legalism and license. But I think what's interesting is when you look at scripture, it really doesn't give us a ton of equations and even maps for this, but it does give us a practice and a posture of how we're supposed to respond to this. And so here's my hope. My hope is that we leave this morning understanding to how to have rhythmic, cheerful disciplines of generosity and simplicity in our life, and for us to leave guilt-driven impulses when it comes to these two topics. Also, before I begin, I just want to recognize that whenever you talk about money within the church, granted, people have... Um, there's a level of sensitivity to it because I recognize I've been in rooms where it has been utilized to reach an end in mind. Like there's like a big giving campaign after the sermon, which by the way, there's not. Um, uh, and, and, and not that that's always bad, uh, but just so you know, for, for us, this is the only objective of the sermon is discipleship. We're supposed to have an, a, an honest conversation about what this is, but I also recognize that even stepping into the sermon, there is a high level of spiritual warfare going on here. When, God ta- when Jesus talks about it, he says, you cannot serve God and money. The word for that is mammon. It's an actual name of a demonic principality. So when we talk about this subject, the reason why it's hard isn't just because people, it's because it's private. It's because it's spiritual. There is a principality assigned that's named. There's not very many spirit, demonic principalities named in the Bible. This is one of them. And so when we talk about this today, we are engaging righteously into the spiritual warfare of unveiling lies, removing guilt, and shedding light on what God promises us as the abundant life in Him. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus promises. He says, why do you worry about these things? What He's dealing with is anxiety and worry and idolatry. And He's inviting them into what? He says, Does not God care for you more than these? It's intimacy. It's relationship. And so as we dive into this message this morning, I just want to just pause. I know we've stood in my scripture. I just want to pray, though. I want to pray that whatever sort of um, uh, baggage we're coming into this conversation with, whether it's from the church or your own personal, whatever guilt or condemnation you have, of like, I I know that my life does not reflect probably what the, the Bible says in terms of these things. Will you be able to just leave all of that wound up, tangled mess at the cross? And we could just say, Lord, as your children, would you instruct us today through your word? So would you just pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you so much 
that uh, this, this idea, this relationship between simplicity and generosity is one personally that I've found myself um, wrestling with. And uh, I come here today with my brothers and sisters. We come humbly to submit ourselves under the word of God. Lord, that we would be formed more into the image of Christ. And that as we become more formed into the image of Christ, that we would reflect the generosity of Christ and the simplicity of Christ. That both of those things would begin to be evident in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For those taking notes, uh, a quick outline. We're going to be talking about simplicity first. And we're going to be talking about freedom from clutter and freedom in contentment. And then secondly, we're going to be talking about generosity. Generosity with our resources, generosity with our relationships, and generosity within the receiving of God's generosity towards us. So first, let's talk a little bit about simplicity, freedom from clutter, and then freedom within contentment. And the reason we're separating this into two different categories is because one deals with the exterior reality of simplicity, and one deals with the interior reality of simplicity. The exterior, we're just going to call it freedom from clutter. In that verse we just read, Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But do store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So we have this image, this Greek word, thesarizo, which means to store up, to gather, to reserve, to collect, to lay up, to reserve, keep in store, to heap up, to accumulate. And so if you were to think that your life trajectory is accumulating things. And, and some of you guys, you, this is very real. This is literal for you. You just like to hear, you call yourself sentimental, but really you just don't like to let things go. And so things begin to just kind of store up and you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know why I have this random pamphlet from 1997, but it's so meaningful and I don't know how to get rid of it. And, um, and there's this sense where we, we, we want to accumulate. And, and what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, don't do this. He just says, do it in the right place. You were actually designed to accumulate. You were designed to treat things as special. He says, but you can do that in a way that is temporal and fleeting, or you can do that in a way, listen, that lasts forever. So when he invites them into this, what in the Sermon on the Mount is, is largely this practice of simplicity. He says, you don't need to worry about these things. They're just going to pass away. Like, don't store up here. Store up in eternal life. And what he's inviting you into is just to, to take some inventory. Um, what, what things are starting to clutter my life? What are some things, and this could be with your time, your resources, this could be physical things in your house. This just what sort of things are beginning to start to crowd into this thing where you're actually being choked out of the abundant life that Jesus invited you into? And just dealing with the question of, well, why do we do that? Like, what motivates us to accumulate so much? And, and, and the reality, I know this is complex, but in short, I think it has a lot to do with the, the idea of comparison. As human beings, sociologists, anthropologists will tell you, no matter what culture you're in, you compare yourselves to others. And the good part of this is it helps you feel driven to want to do more, to achieve more. And that's, that's essentially the, the, the primal sense of what we're trying to do. But comparison also, famously has been said, it's the thief of joy. Because comparison works both ways. Normally, when it comes to finances, we compare upwards, meaning, well, I don't have that. So I should probably get closer to having that. 
and we compare upwards all the time. But when it comes to pride and self-ego, we compare downwards. Well, at least I'm not in that position. And we can literally, within a few minutes, vacillate between the two. And so we have to just have a, a sense of reality when it comes to comparison. Uh, here on the coast in San Diego, the wealthiest or the most expensive city to live in in America, our comparison game is incredibly strange. Because the reality, if we were plopped anywhere else in the world, what would happen to our comparison in terms of our external resources would drastically change. And that's not to say that everyone in this room is well off. I know many of you, so I know that not to be the case. Largely because we live on the coast, right? We live in San Diego. We're just trying to like not have to move, right? Just holding on for all we've got. But we're surrounded by what we perceive to be a normal that creates this inner narrative inside of a I must, I must be really behind. When in fact, if you were to average the income around the world per family, and you take into consideration the purchasing power adjustment, the average is under $18,000 a year per family. That's multiple incomes coming in. Um, if you were to make minimum wage in San Diego with one person, you'd make $35,000 a year. And again, even the numbers, like, wow, that's not, that's not a lot. But all of this has to do with kind of this external world of, of do I have enough? And I don't know if I do, so I should probably get more, which feeds into this other lie that all of us would probably be like, we know this isn't true, that if I have more, then maybe I'll have peace. And although intellectually we know that not to be true, we still kind of bite that apple. Which is interesting because if you look at the first introduction to sin, Genesis chapter 3, It says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You see, the original sin that the serpent came to tempt Eve with is God is withholding from you. I think at the root of almost every sin, if not every sin, is the lie that God is withholding something from you. Which is why when Jesus shows up, he challenges that very concept. He says, why would you believe God's withholding from you? And that creates this catastrophic event and continues to, not just with Adam and Eve, in our lives. Whenever we believe that God is withholding goodness, joy, beauty from us, then we feel like it's our opportunity to take whatever that proverbial apple is and to ingest it into our life. And so when we talk about simplicity, what I want us to do is, is, is to not talk about simplicity from a place of scarcity, meaning material things are bad, have less of them, watch a couple Netflix series on The Minimalist and Marie Kondo, and then you'll be happy, right? Because honestly, a lot of that's kind of like a scarcity mind. It's like, oh, I just need to have less. But rather, we would approach simplicity from an abundance mindset of, God, you've been so good to me. And what's amazing, my my friends, is some of the people I find practice simplicity from a place of abundance oftentimes are the people that have the least amount of resources. 
They just find themselves in this place like, Lord, I, this thing, this meal that I have in front of me is a gift. It's something that we've been trying to just do even as a family sit around the table as we just recognize, even in my own prayers, I'm like, Lord, this, this meal was, is a gift. Right? This, this craft gluten-free mac and cheese is a gift from heaven. Because if we, if we start to believe a narrative of God is withholding from us, then the only natural thing we'll do is that we can accumulate more to receive the thing that God has. But when we understand what God has given us is good and beautiful and He is enough, then we get to start looking at the things around us and being like, I'm talking about externally, why do I need that? Do I need that? What is that telling me about myself? Is that, is that for status? Or is that for, is that for what, what is that thing that's going on? Which leads to where all of this is animated from, and it's your interior life, which is kind of our, our second sub-point here, is it's contentment. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances is. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And what I love here is that Paul is not, is not prescribing about poverty to the Philippians. He said, you can only find contentment if you have less. What he's saying is, listen, I've had a lot and I've had a little. I've been hungry and I've been well-fed. Contentment is available no matter what external circumstances I'm in. I have the ability to understand that all is gift, he is good, and whether my circumstances from a cultural standpoint point to that or not, I get to live according to a different reality. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, he talks about Abraham. There's an interesting case study on, on the fact. Incredibly wealthy in terms of ancient terms in an agrarian culture. He says, Abraham possessed nothing. Yet, was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, and goods of every sort. He also had his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything but he possessed nothing. There is a spiritual secret. He had everything, yet he possessed nothing. There is this sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books of systematic theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. At the practice of renunciation, the secret of contentment is knowing what you have. Where is your treasures? Jesus' question. Where are you storing things? Matthew 13, 44 tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found it and he reburied it. Then in all of his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Not because the things that he had weren't of value, but what he found in the field, which is a reference to the kingdom of heaven, the reality, the rule and reign of Christ, makes everything else pale in comparison. This is where it's found. It's abundance. There's so much that Christ has given to us. David Livingstone says, I place no value on anything I possess except in relationship to the kingdom of God. Which is why Paul, in, a, in another letter to 1 Timothy, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, 
We will be content with that. And again, Tozer says, Our woes begin when God has forced out of this central shrine and things we're allowed to enter in. Right? We force God out and we let other things come in. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there is, in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight amongst themselves for the first place on the throne. This is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real, real spiritual trouble. I love this imagery that, that Tozer writes about. That He says, the minute God is not at the center throne of your life, there's a war going on for who gets to sit on it. And it says, when God is there, that's where contentment is found. I think it makes sense that at the end of Proverbs, the writer says, Two things I ask of the Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Give us today our daily bread. Now, I want to pause right here, because this stream of thinking, this, this biblical theology, oftentimes takes a turn here, and it goes into a celebration of poverty. I remember um, when I was young, just getting into ministry, I went to like this youth conference, and I sat in a room with this guy named Shane Claiborne. Has anyone ever heard of him? Um, he had just written his first book called Irresistible Revolution, and it was like all the rage in like the early 2000s amongst youth pastors. And, and Jane Claiborne, he had like, he had like dreadlocks. He wore this like literally like, they're like coffee bean bags that he made. They're the only clothes. He wore super gross. Um, but he, he lived in Philadelphia, one of the most crime-ridden neighborhoods. And he just, and he made this case that this is what Jesus would be doing. And it was compelling. And I think what that kick-started in me and a lot of people's generation was this sense of, of not knowing what to do with stuff, not knowing to do with the material world, and really not being given any sort of theology that when God comes to bless his people, it is with physical things. As Israel says, you have land flowing with milk and honey. When, he, when Jesus says the pagans chase after the clothes and the food, he doesn't, say, he doesn't say you don't need them. He says your father knows you need them. Trust him for them. And so I think I was exposed to this, this ideology that like wealth is bad, money's bad. If you really want to be like Jesus, you've got to be like Shane. Um, and again, by the way, I think what he's, he's doing some very beautiful things. But I think that I was given this extreme version. And, I, and for, uh, for years, I just didn't know what to do with it. And I felt that, like, that, that there was this almost this low-level guilt. If, if there's, and by the way, and this wasn't like me in general like living in luxury when we first got married, you know. Um, very much of, of especially our early years of having young kids, I mean, we were barely scraping by, and yet I still felt like I was just like, like almost in sin. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that when Jesus instructs us, this isn't for us to say, because what Paul says, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in want, contentment is available for me. Is Jesus at the throne or are other things vying for that attention? And the reason why this is really important is because 
when we lead into glor- the glorification of poverty, I mean, the glorification of, or, or kind of, the, I should say, the demonization of material goods, it does two things. Number one is it separates the spiritual material world, which is not a biblical framework. The spiritual material world very much intertwined. It, it's, it's within the actual, we just had bread and juice, right? This, the, Jesus comes in an embodied form. You're not supposed to, like, this is the spiritual stuff and the material stuff's all bad. The second danger of that is it becomes a great weapon to just judge others. That oftentimes is those people with that sort of framework that they view other people that have wealth and have means and they automatically assume they're selfish and that they're not generous. And I think one of the things that I have been just absolutely blessed by are those in my life who have much and that choose to live in a kingdom reality of generosity, of selflessness. And the reason why they encourage me is because when Jesus warns, it's hard to do this with wealth around you. They have chosen the cross daily. And I think that there should be a sense of, instead of, again, just being like, wow, I guess if you have much, there's something less spiritual about you. For those around you in a material sense who have much, yet follow Jesus in a kingdom reality, should be looked at with honor as brothers and sisters. Well done. Because the, one of the reasons why I think this sermon is so important is because as followers of Jesus, if we can have a healthy biblical framework of what to do with wealth, why wouldn't God want to put that in the hands of his followers? And we're going to see this here in just a minute. When we have a vision, a kingdom vision, of what God wants to do with his good, beautiful world and the resources it produced, then we, all of a sudden we don't have to have this duplicit understanding of like, well, I guess this is, like, stuff is bad and the spiritual stuff is good. It's understanding like, no, no, all of this is being invited and joined together. And the glue that does that is contentment. It's recognizing, God, you are good, whether I have much or little. You have not changed. And when I have much, Lord Jesus, which we're going to talk about here in a second, what do I do with it? And when I have little, what do I do with it? And so I want to give you guys a few practical things, um, which I, I, I can tend to kind of live in the theorized world. But I want to give you some practical things to consider in terms of the building blocks towards a spiritual discipline of simplicity. Just four things. That you would have circumspect, circumspection without legalism, acts of renunciation, unplug from consumptive society, and create and cultivate community that celebrates simplicity and generosity. A quick word on each. Number one, have circumspection without legalism. Understand that when we talk about contentment and simplicity and generosity, we vary in background, we vary emotionally, we vary vocationally, we vary with our biases, we vary in our context of culture. And so you're invited to be circumspective towards your own life. What is God asking you to do? But try not to just project that on others. Being like, wow, the Lord asked me to give up coffee. I can't believe that guy's at a coffee shop again. Man. And we, it sounds like we do it though. We take our personal convictions and we hold them against other people. So have this internal, like, Lord, what are you asking me to do? Which leads to our second one. What are the acts of renunciation that God is inviting you into? Not to take things away, but to add life to you. So look at your budgets. Right? Where are you, where are you spending money that you don't need to spend? Look at your calendars. Where are you investing in times that you don't need to be investing in those things? Look at how you spend time with entertainment. 
Look at your closets. Jen and I just cleaned out our closet, um, it's like a week ago, last week. And I was going in, and I, I knew the sermon was coming, and I found myself just watching my relationships to shoes, like dropping into a bag. I'm like, wow, this is so weird, you know? I, this is creating this emotional response in me that I'm saying goodbye to these shoes that I haven't worn in three months. I mean, and, and it was good. It was healthy for my, at a soul level. I was like, okay, look at your social media engagements. Look at your relationships, acquaintances versus friendships. How, much, how, much, how many of us get sucked into spending time with people who actually God has invited you into a closer circle of just like, hey, just friends and family and, and stuff like that. And then leaning into open tables and making room for maybe the person who would never be invited to your table. So I've been so proud of like just the, the outpouring of people saying, I'll have an open table. It's, again, it's aligning with Jesus. So what, and again, this is going to be different for every person here, but just look at your life. And this week, this is your homework. What are some things that God is inviting you just to set down? You don't need to do that. And they can be very practical things. Next, unplug from consumptive society. Um, Use that unsubscribe button at the bottom of the emails that gets sent to your inbox. Choose quality over quantity, Right? Recreation that is healthy, joy-filled, inspiring, community-based. Buy for, when you buy things, buy for usefulness, not status. Simplicity is not synonymous with cheap. I'm going to say it again. Simplicity is not synonymous with cheap. Simplicity resonates more with durability, usability, and beauty. Um, And oftentimes, what I found, especially in times in my life where we had very little, I was almost more tempted to buy more things cheaply rather than the spiritual discipline of just saving up and buying something that was maybe more expensive, but it would last longer, or something that mattered more, and something that actually showed beauty in terms of like God's creation and his intent. And just value serving. Like what can you, in your purchasing, what can you purchase that actually serves others and not just serves you? And then the last thing is just create, cultivate community that celebrates simplicity and generosity. And this is the opposite of being judgmental. It's, it's finding community where we get to encourage one another in their acts of generosity and in their acts of simplicity. But let me, before we move into generosity, just a quick warning. Simplicity cannot be an end in and of itself, um, which is very much what the world is trying to do. Um, the, the, did anyone see the Netflix documentary, The Minimalist? Um, they like went on tour. Um, I just looked up this morning, um, 80 million streams from that. And there's books and movements. And, and by the way, they make, it's like, it looks beautiful. It looks appealing because I think it's tapping into something that we actually really desire. But here's where I feel like the cultural version of this has fallen short. It becomes an in and of itself. Like my goal in simplicity is just to like have like a more aesthetic apartment or to like not have clutter. But you see, simplicity, please catch this, simplicity, the reason why it's important is it is the midwife to generosity. When we live, sim- when we live simplistically, it actually gets to help birth generosity. It moves us into everything as a gift. When we understand that I, even though I may own things, I do not possess them. It allows us to open-handedly move into a place of helping God birth generosity into the world around us. So let's talk about generosity for a little bit. Now, simplicity is, it's, um, it's not as celebrated in terms of just kind of culture and around the world. It kind of has its, its own kind of niche. Generosity is universally celebrated. 
Like, no matter who you are, if you're an atheist, Buddhist, Confucius, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, just a few quotes. Um, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, says, let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Um, a Buddhist saying says that teach this triple truth to all, a generous heart, kind speech, and a life of service and compassion are things with, which renew humanity. Confucius said, he who wishes to secure the good of others has already secured his own. A Hindu proverb says, they who give have all things, they are with, withhold have nothing. Islam in the Quran says, you shall never be truly righteous until you give alms what you dearly cherish. In Judaism, King Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, says whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. And so, I, and I say all that to, just to paint a picture of, universally we can agree, generosity is a good thing. This isn't like a uniquely Christian thing, but I want to ask a question. What is unique about Christianity's vision for generosity? What makes generosity distinct for those who are following Jesus? I think one of the most um, potent passages is when Paul is instructing Timothy, uh, his church that he's leading. So Paul planted a church in Ephesus. We just went through Ephesians this summer. After Paul left Ephesus, he instructed Timothy to take over his church. We know Ephesus was one of the wealthiest um, cities in the ancient world. And because of that, we know that the congregation within Ephesus was a wealthy congregation. So at the end of his letter, he actually gives Timothy instruction on how to pastor the rich. And so we're going to read that. And this is not an assumption that everyone in this room is wealthy. But there's some things in here that deal with what do we do with wealth and resource and generosity and what are some lessons that we can learn that I think are really helpful. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, this entire passage is framed within the lens of eternity. Paul is saying you, got, you have to get them to think about heaven. You have to get them to think about eternity. And then he gives them three things of three different lenses in which they should view wealth. Number one, and, and one that, to be honest, is a bit surprising, says it's for enjoyment. Number two, it's to do good deeds. And thirdly, to be generous and to share. That when you do these three things, enjoyment, doing good, and being generous, you are actually not just storing up for things here on this earth, you're actually storing up an eternal reality. The last line of 1 Timothy 6.19, I think is so it's so profound. He says, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold, I love saying, that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's what Paul's talking about. Is this life? Absolutely. This is real. God's in the midst of this. It's blessed and it's beautiful and it's, and it's hard and painful and everything in between. But when Paul talks about he, heaven, he says, that's truly life. Live in such a way that you're leaning into that. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says, someday this upside-down world will be turned right-side up. 
Nothing in all eternity will turn it back again. If we are wise, we will use our brief lives on earth, positioning ourselves for the turn. And then he gives this illustration. He says, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you are a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. It's loved, I love that image that it evokes. It doesn't mean like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't deny that the needs, Jesus is saying things, it's, listen, God knows that the needs that you have. He's saying, but if you know this, and the war is over, why wouldn't you invest in the currency that will last when the war is finally ceased? Mark Slomka, who's teaching in downtown today, he's my pastor, um, we're writing this sermon together. And, and he's someone this in my life that has really modeled this really well. Um, and he wrote this, he says, it is a lack of faith that makes us opt for earthly rather than heavenly treasure. If we really believed in heavenly treasures, who among us would be so stupid as to buy the hoard temporal gold and hoard temporal gold? We just don't believe. We act as heaven is a dream, a religious fantasy, which we affirm because we're orthodox. If we believed in heaven, we would willingly embrace simplicity and generosity. We would run to embrace it because who in their right mind would allow clutter to keep them from the treasure, Jesus, they deeply yearned for. Instead, many of us, just like the assurance that something nice awaits for us when the real life is over, the cluttered life will rarely testify that Jesus is the treasure we seek, live for, and endeavor to follow well. And so it's for us, it's this invitation to live, what? According to the true life. The one that, that's, that's very much coming. And the church at her best understands this. When the Holy Spirit ushers us into generous living. I want to read you what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and starts the church. Acts chapter 4 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. James K. Baxter, in his book, Thoughts About the Holy Spirit, says, The first Christians did not start to share their goods in a free and full manner till after the bomb of the Spirit exploded at their souls in Pentecost. Before then, they, were, they would be morally incapable of this free and joyful sharing. The acquisitive habit is one of the deepest-rooted habits of the human race. To say, this is yours, not mine, and to carry the words into effect is as much a miracle of God as raising from the dead. And it's true, and, and I love what Baxter writes in his book, he says, this doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. And this is, again, where we differ from the world. We're talking about a type of generosity that doesn't just lead to altruism, like, man, that felt really good. Psychologically speaking, by the way, did you know that you have more endorphins released when you give than when you receive? Like, scientifically proven. So it makes sense that the world's saying, we should give. 
You know, it moves us towards compassion. It creates better community. But listen, the type of generosity the Bible calls us into is not birthed out of a good idea. It's birthed from the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it releases the grip of mammon. It releases the grip of things. And it floods you with such life that you cannot help but want to share that. It, it roots you into a reality beyond this life and the life that's to come. It invites you into something that can't rust, it can't be destroyed, it can't be stolen, it can't be broken away. It's, it's recession-proof, right? It doesn't matter what kind of person in government or the economy because you live into a different economy. You're living into an eternal reality that just says, Lord, all of this is, is gift from you, yet all of this is back to you. And this is generosity at its best looks like this. And so I want to look at these three different things that Paul talks about. He says, money's for your, the, the wealth you have. He's speaking to a rich congregation. He says, it's number one, it's for your enjoyment. So again, it goes against the kind of poverty thing, like, I guess I should never enjoy anything good, you know? Like, no, he says, no, you should, this is first and foremost, you can enjoy this. Secondly, it's to do good, which in, in if you look at how that word is used throughout the New Testament, oftentimes it has to do with the, um, the benevolent caring for the loved ones you have. It's generous caring. And then lastly, he says, and you just, you share, you're generous. And so there's, um, if I were to recommend one book for you guys to read on the subject, for me that I found really, really challenging but good, is a book called God and Money from John Cortinez and Gregory Balmer. Um, and we'll have a slide at the end recommending some books. But this book in particular, God and Money, is written by two guys at Harvard Business School. No, they're not pastors, they're not theologians, um, but they just started just realizing that the world they were living in was starting to challenge their Christian worldview. And they just started doing a deep dive on all that the scripture had to say, and they did a really incredible job of creating a robust biblical framework of what do we do with wealth. And this is written, again, from two Harvard business guys. And they put it into three categories that really line up with what I think Paul just told the Ephesians, that you can either be a spender, a saver, or a servant. And the world oftentimes just puts the category of your spender or a saver. This is like premarital, like 101. You know, like who's a spender, who's a saver? Dave Ramsey calls them the free spirit and the nerd, you know? Um, and their, their just vision of resources is different. But I love what they said, that the, the biblical framework on generosity is that you are a servant. And so I want to talk about each of these three things. Number one, uh, as I want to talk about this idea about a, a spender, right? And it's investing in the now. It's investing into the present. That word enjoyment, Paul says, it says, it says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for what? For our enjoyment. It's this Greek word that's only used uh, two other times, aplosis, where we get our word applause. And it literally means kind of this like fleeting, this was great. Um, uh, Wednesday night, Jen and I and some friends got to go see Coldplay, which was as good as you could imagine. It was so amazing. Um, and it was, and by the way, this always doesn't, whatever I'm preaching on, it kind of like puts this like lens around everything that I'm doing. And I'm walking in this thing, I'm like simplicity and generosity. And I'm just like, you know, like spent way too much money on these tickets and we're on the floor. Um, but honestly, it was this verse, God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, that was actually liberating. 
Like it wasn't, I, w- I was liberated, I wasn't legalized. Like it wasn't this like legalism, like just swarm around. I was like, oh, I'm gonna enjoy music and food and friends and laughter and joy. These, these are gifts that God has given me for our enjoyment. And so it's, and, and, you, and the reason I bring this up is because you know how this is. When you're talking with Christians and you, and you give them a compliment, the first thing they do is they tell you that they got it on sale. <laughs> tell me I'm lying. Like, you're just like, man, that looks so cute. Like, oh my gosh, I wasn't going to get it, but this is crazy deal. I just had to get it, you know? Like, man, that, is that a new car? It's like, yeah, it is, but my other one broke, and it was going to cost me more money to, like, we immediately start justifying anything we ever have. But it seems what Paul is saying is that we should be like, yeah, I freaking love it. I'm enjoying this so much. Like, would be a Christian response. Like, hey that's, a, hey, that's a really, like, that looked like an amazing vacation. And it wasn't like, yeah, my parents paid for it. <laughs> be like, I loved it. It was so good. Like, oh, man, I just saw you went to June and Jolie last night. I wouldn't be like, I had a gift card, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was great. And um, so it's, it's just this posture and we're laughing because there's truth in it, right? Like, there's this thing in us that I, I almost feel that God would be like, hey, listen, I, I love that you're trying to be conscious and aware. But don't let that rob you from just joy, from those moments. These are gifts. And I've given them to you. You don't need to feel bad about them. Enjoy them. Secondly, um, in the book, it, it references as, as savers. I would use Paul's language of doing good. It's being intelligent with the wealth that God has given you for the provision of those in your care. Right? When he says, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, it's this holistic approach that your life is to care for others. The Proverbs are filled with really wise sayings in terms of wealth. Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Proverbs 13, 11, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Um, talking 1 Timothy 5, a says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially of their own household has denied their faith. And this isn't talking about those who are unemployed. He's talking about those who people who willfully choose not to provide for their family. He says, your faith is disconnected. Why? Because we were created to actually be wise with it. And just a quick story. Um, Years ago, I was in this Bible study called Men's Fraternity. And it was like, they woke up like way too early. It's like 6 a.m. I'm just trying to stay awake. And I'm going through this notebook, and he starts giving this lesson on providing for your family. Um, and again, this isn't just for men. This is for, for anyone. But he says, he, he challenged me. He says, he says, if you don't have life insurance, you are not loving your family. I was like, I was like 22 at the time. I'm like, I'm gonna die? <laughs> like, what? Like, I need life insurance? He's like, if you don't have an emergency fund, if you don't have, like, and he just goes in the thing, and again, like, I'm a youth pastor, I'm barely making, all of a sudden I just realized, like, man, I was, I had no framework for caring for those around me. And so, like, that week I went and, like, signed up for life insurance. I, I checked our other insurance policies. I started making, we started going through Financial Peace University, and we started talking about all these things. And this is a time we didn't have very much at all. But, yeah, I just realized, like, oh, this is actually a way that I love. The same way I would, like, 
do the dishes or like give a nice gift or write a letter. It's caring, it's providing, it's using what God has been giving me to do that. But I want to end this time talking about the third one, and it's the one that I hope that all of us adopt today, that more than you just being like, I'm a spender or I'm a saver, that you would say, as a follower of Jesus, I am a servant. I am a servant with what God has given me. Jeremiah 21, or sorry, Jeremiah 22, he's rebuking a king, and he's pointing to his father Josiah, saying, he says, you need to look at what your father did. And Jeremiah 22 says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Now, that last line I want us to pay attention to. Jeremiah, the prophet, is saying, listen, your father had enough. He was a king. So do you really need more cedar? Do you really need more of these things? He says, when you're totally neglecting the poor and the needy, you need to advocate for them. And then he drops this line. When talking about caring for the poor and the needy, he says, isn't that what it means to know me? That for, for God... There seems to be a correlation between our knowing of God and our caring and sharing generously for others. It's maybe what John had in mind when he wrote his letter. And he says, if you have material goods and you see your brother or sister in need and have no compassion on them, how is the love of God inside of you? These two things are intertwined. And so when we have an eternal framework where everything we have, what's in your bank account or not in your bank account, what's in your driveway or not, the clothes you're wearing, the place you live, whether you feel like it's much or plenty, that you would say, God, it's yours, all of it. And you called me to be a servant. How do I serve my family, if you're married, your kids? How do I serve my neighbor? How do I care for those who don't have the ability to care for themselves. And when we do this, we start to mirror the desire of God. Ron McKenzie, he's an economist, Christian economist, he said, the best way to shift wealth from this world to the next is to give it to the poor. I, I just found that quote incredibly provocative in my own life. I'm just like, wow, the quickest, best way to transfer money, my currency, if you will, is to find the poor and the needy and to do that. It's, it's a safe investment when it comes to eternity. Um, last night, um, <clears throat> Jubilee and Vienna were pouring, uh, they had like some sort of like green smoothie that they were fighting over. And Jubilee comes up with the idea like, hey, I'll split it. And, and Vienna gets really like, she's like, no, you're gonna have like, you're gonna have more in your cup. And I'm just like rolling my eyes, I'm like, please, Lord, give me patience. And she starts pouring it, and then Jubilee makes this thing. She's like, fine, Vienna, I'll let you pick whatever cup you want. And then Vienna's like, really? And she's like, yeah. And so one's like a millimeter more, and she's like, grabs it, and she's like, what's up? I got it, you know? Like, <laughs> and I was really proud of Jubilee in that moment. Um, Jubilee likes fairness, things like that, and I, I saw this, and I just <laughs> asked her, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, you ever heard the story about Abraham and Lot? And she's like, no. I'm like, well, Ab Lot's Abraham's nephew, and, and they, they're growing, and like, they have herds and shepherds and all these things, and, and God gives them this land. And so Abraham says, look, we can't be on the same land anymore. Why don't you pick 
Here's this land or this land, which one do you want? And one of them, it's, if you know the story, it's green and lush and there's water and things like that. And one is not, it's just barren and things like that. And Lot is just like, I'll take that one. And Abraham's like, great, good service. And Abraham goes and, and God blesses his land, blesses what God is doing in that place and into a way that's a testament to who God is. And I was just telling Jubal, like, you just did that. Like, you let your sister pick the better thing. God sees that. He wants to honor that in you. Um, and somehow I got into the conversation about Lot's wife turning into salt, and that just weirded out my kids. So we kind of went downhill <laughs> from there. I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a weird one to explain, explain to you before you go to bed at night. But... Um, like salt, like I'm like yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> Teresa of Avila says this: Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which He looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which He walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which He blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body on earth now, but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion in this world. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. And for us just to really take that to consideration. And um, last thing, I'm just going to close this up with this. There's more, but um, Sunday... Um, Jen and I went to go be with Pastor Gustavo um, at Ciudad de Dios because it's their anniversary, it's their 13th anniversary as a church. And he invited us to come and, and he asked me to preach. I wasn't able to this time, but it was this, um, I'm like, I just want to come. I just want to come experience this and, and tell you what. Walking into a room filled with 1,500 plus refugees worshiping Jesus will do something to you. Like it, it was, it was unlike anything I experienced. And they're dancing. They're singing at the top of their lungs. And Jen and I are just like blown away just to be in the presence of something so holy. Of people who, have, they have nothing. And then something happened that we were not expecting. Um, and, it, and it just in a literal sense, just took our breath away. I just want to show you a picture or a video of they started having a generosity moment. They asked the church to give. I just want to show you this, this short clip um, of what we witnessed. people, and I've heard their stories, are coming up and putting, like, their offering into these offering plates. And Jen and I looked at each other like, wow. And I have to tell you, I, I learned more in that moment than I did in hours of study this week, of the spiritual discipline of simplicity and generosity. They are my exemplars. They are the luminaries when it comes to this. It was, it was so 
challenging just because I know, I mean, I've watched these people show up. Some of them, they don't even have a backpack. And many of them would put what they had, and so I thought it was so powerful, they would put whatever they had, a coin or two, maybe a, maybe a bill, and they'd put it in the hands of their children. And their children would go up and they'd put it in the offering plate. And I was just like, wow. Talk about feeling like everything I have is yours. It was so profound. Reminded me of Mark 12, when, the, when someone comes in the temple treasury and, and puts this large amount, and this poor widow comes and puts in these two widows' mind. Jesus calls his disciples over and just, send, I'm summarizing here, this is like the message version, <laughs> Benji's message version. And Jesus says, she gets it. Like she's, everyone might be looking at the large amount this person's giving. But there's something about what I'm going to read. He says, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on. This is a powerful testament. So I want to end our, our morning going back to the very first um, chapter we read, Matthew 6, 26. And, and I want us to realize what's underneath all of this, the practice of simplicity, the practice of generosity. Matthew 6, 26 says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And here's a line I just want to just say over, over you, Life Church, today. Are you not much more valuable than they? That is Jesus' question. Do you know how valuable you are? Because if you do, you become the wide-eyed, wide-heart-opened recipients of God's generosity. And when you see everything as gift, you can start to practice simplicity and contentment in the things that you have. You can start to practice generosity with enjoyment and service and, and generous giving towards others. Because we've been invited to God's love, which is an eternal reality that we will spend the rest of our life doing. I invite the worship team to come join me. As they come up, I'm just gonna, there, there should be a slide with some book recommendations for you guys. Um, I would highly encourage you guys to pick one of these up. Uh, if, you're, if you're curious in the simplicity and contentment side, Richard Foster's book, Freedom of Simplicity, is profound. It's so rich and good. Um, the book I referenced earlier, God and Money, by John Cortinas and Gregory Balmer, uh, is a provocative but yet biblically robust vision of what does it look like to, to deal with that. Um, and Randy Alcorn, he's written a few, but Money, Possessions, and Eternity, or The Treasure Principle, are both really, really good. Um, and this is what I'd like you to do. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to end directing our gaze towards our generous God towards us. But I just want to read Psalm 23 over you. This has been the verse that's been on my heart. I'm just going to invite you as the worship team just starts to play and we, we get ready to conclude our morning. I just want to, um, I want to just, I want us to pray this. Let these words wash over your heart and when they just come back out in terms of prayer to the Lord, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, thank you. You are a shepherd. You lead us to streams and pastures we could never get to on our own. God, and with you we lack nothing. Help us to know that and to believe that. Help us to know that when we go through the valley, Lord Jesus, when we are acutely aware of danger and lack, that you'd remind us you are with us. And Lord, help us to remember that all of this points to a table where our cup runs over. We were made for more. Help us not settle for cheap imitation and help us live into the eternal vision you've called us into. Thank you that you have been generous towards us, not just in sending us good things, but in sending us your son. We receive him as the treasure of our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.